Hey everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Weird Tales Podcast. My name is Tycho Alhambra. Thank you for listening. If this is your first episode, welcome. We're happy to have you, and please know you're welcome here regardless of your race, sexual orientation, or gender identity. The Weird Tales Podcast believes that trans rights are human rights, that abortion is healthcare, and that black lives matter, and we stand in solidarity with you all. Transcripts of the show, as well as links to institutions fighting for reproductive justice, can all be found in the show notes. Here's a fun fact that kind of crept up on me. After this episode, the next time you hear from me will be when the October Project begins. October 1st, baby, coming up in less than a week. Last week, I put it out there that if you are an up-and-coming or new writer of weird fiction, and you'd like to have one of your stories read on the show, I'd be willing to talk about it. This is one of those stories. Chris Halliday contacted me and sent along this story, which I absolutely loved. I'm very grateful to Chris for allowing me to perform his work, and especially with such a sterling example. Chris Halliday is a British writer, role-playing game designer, and occultist. His writing can be found in the collections The Hotwell's Horror and Other Stories by Far Horizons Press, Puncture Wounds by Stygian Fox Publishing, Ancestors and Descendants by Innsmouth Gold, Lost Gods by Crystal Inc., The Book of Karnacki by Bellinger Books, and in the role-playing games Pulp Fantastic and The Dinosaur Protocol, both from Battlefield Press International. You can find him on Twitter as at Dr. Talk, or on his infrequently updated blog at http colon slash slash argentgames.wordpress.com. Links to all of those in the show notes. We are such stuff as dreams are made on, and our little life is rounded with a sleep. William Shakespeare, The Tempest, Act 4, Scene 1. Rounded with a Sleep by Chris Halliday. When I first met Joseph Pavlitsky, he looked tired, but then everyone I see professionally does. That's part of being a specialist in sleep disorders. Very few of the people you meet look well-rested. Joe was different, though. Sitting in my office, disheveled and weary, he didn't just look starved of sleep. He looked scared. I'm getting ahead of myself. Forgive me. My thoughts are usually so much more ordered. Maybe some context will help you understand. I'm a clinical psychologist working in the sleep studies lab that's part of the Bristol Residence Imaging Center, lovingly referred to as BRIC by all who sail in her. We're a joint venture between the NHS and St. Luke's University in Bristol, originally intended to accept overspill from Northcote Hospital's overstretched imaging department. When Northcote suffered a catastrophic fire a few years ago, BRIC took on much of the medical imaging work in the region with a corresponding uplift in funding. The university took the opportunity to graft a sleep studies lab to the BRIC facility and took me on a year later to run the sleep disorders program. It's satisfying work in a field that's still barely understood. The line between sleeping and waking is never as firm as most people think, and what our brains do while our bodies are resting remains mostly a mystery. One of the reasons the sleep lab is housed in the same building as our MRI and CAT scan machinery is to allow us to map out exactly what the sleeping brain is up to while we dream, and we've had some fascinating results. Unfortunately, getting someone to experience natural sleep inside an MRI, not the quietest of medical instruments, is never easy, especially if they're having difficulty sleeping in the first place. Sedation naturally distorts our results, a problem we're still trying to work around. 
My practice in the lab is based around counseling, sleep hygiene, and occasionally monitoring inpatients. We have a small suite of rooms equipped to provide real-time data on a patient's sleep. Everything from skin conductivity and breathing to brain activity and heart rate. Most of the time, I'm more of a counselor, evaluating patients and providing simple talking therapy in my office. It's the part of the job I enjoy, used to enjoy, the most. Working one-on-one with my patients to understand their problems and help them find a way to the rest they need. When Joe stumbled into my office and slumped down in the chair opposite mine, I'd assessed him before he was fully seated. White male, middle-aged, beginning to thicken around the middle, clean-shaven, some attempt to stay well-groomed despite the dark circles under his eyes. Nice watch, no wedding ring. His clothes were the upper end of off the peg, so he was holding down a reasonably well-paid job. So many of the people I see are barely scraping by, it was refreshing to see someone who's doing reasonably well financially. He stared at me through red-rimmed eyes, his expression oddly defeated, as if he knew I wouldn't be able to help him. I glanced at the file open on my lap, even though I'd already made myself familiar with his case, and introduced myself, explaining what I did and a little about the facility. He already knew this, of course. His doctor would have explained it to him when he was referred to us. But I always find it advisable to repeat the information. It helps establish a sense of authority and trust between me and my patients. They need to believe I'm an expert in my field and that together we can solve their problems. After rattling through the usual speech about the right to confidentiality and the exceptions under British law, I paused to look over at Joe. He hadn't moved. The only thing about him that seemed alive were his eyes, flicking between me, the window, and the door as if looking for an escape or expecting an attack. I closed the file and folded my hands in my lap. Why don't you tell me about it? I said, pitching my voice to suggest fatherly warmth. Joe grunted. Not much to tell. Can't sleep. Weariness and something very close to despair trembled in his voice. I cocked my head inquisitively and looked at him. Silence is a useful tool. Most people can't abide it for long and feel the need to fill it with something. What comes out of them in these moments is often very revealing. He hunched further into himself, holding a breath for a moment before releasing it. I just can't. His attitude and the peculiar emphasis of his words suddenly clicked into place for me, and I leaned forward, holding his gaze, lowering the tone of my voice so that he had to lean forward to catch my words. It forced him to mirror my pose, unconsciously bringing him closer into rapport with me. "'What are you afraid of, Joe?' I asked. He stared back at me for a moment, almost shocked. Then the tears came, and with them, his story." The Statement of Joseph Pavlitsky I've always been an extravagant dreamer, you know? I've always been able to remember my dreams, even when I was a kid, and they were never ordinary. I've heard people talk about their dreams and learn there were common themes, the flying dreams, the sex dreams, the dreams of being naked in a public place, the dreams of pursuit, of falling. I never had those. Well, not until recently. My dreams were a wonderland, where I would explore strange places that I somehow knew were simultaneously incredibly distant and right next door. They were incredibly vivid, full of sensory experiences that were so much brighter and realer than the dull world I woke up to every morning. 
There were times when I wondered which world was real and which was dream. Because the thought that this drab, disappointing life was the real one was almost unbearable. In those dreams, I was always lucid, a term I didn't come across until much later in life. I was, I was somehow awake and yet dreaming, effortlessly maintaining the balancing act between sleep and waking that so many other lucid dreamers struggle with. I knew I was asleep. I could feel my sleeping body overlaid upon my dreaming self, almost as if I had two bodies and could slip my consciousness between them. Curiously, I had never enjoyed quite the control over my dreams that other lucid dreamers have. My dreams seemed like solid, concrete things with rules and laws governing them every bit as fixed and immutable as our laws of physics, and I was as much a slave to them as we are slaves to physical laws. Places and people seemed to persist in these faraway dreamlands, all with lives of their own that apparently continued whether I was dreaming of them or not. My position in the dream world was an odd one, even for a dream. I was afforded the status of an honored guest, and the dream people knew both that I was a dreamer and that they themselves were dreams. As I grew and matured in the physical world, so I grew and matured in the world of dreams, though here I was a scrawny, lonely child, and there I was tall and strong and treated like a prince. I came to live for those dreams, where I sailed along the meandering river sky, sipped wine on a balcony in Ulthar while friendly cats played at my feet, walked the bustling docks of Dilathleen. My travels and my dream life became more real to me than my waking reality, and each night I closed my eyes, excited for the wonders I would experience. I was a fool. There came a time when I thought I had seen everything the dream world had to offer, and yet... I still thirsted for new sights and experiences. I, I traveled to the very edge of the dreamlands and knew that the next night as I fell asleep in the waking world, my dream self would awaken somewhere beyond the bounds of all I had experienced. I should have realized. Edges are there for a reason, after all. The moment I awoke in the dream world, I knew I'd made a mistake. Instead of the fragrant, sun-dappled meadows of dream, I was suspended in empty space. Utter, unfathomable blackness surrounded me, a, a darkness so complete that even the memory of light seemed smothered. I could see my body and so knew that I wasn't blind, but beyond that, there seemed to be nothing to see. Only a terrible, cloying darkness, one that invaded my soul through my eyes and chilled me to my core. The worst thing was that despite the darkness, I knew I was observed. I had the feeling of being scrutinized like a microbe beneath a microscope, studied by something vast and alien and hungry. And then I was falling. Maybe I'd been falling for a while and hadn't realized. I don't know. Maybe falling isn't the right word. There was a sense of being pulled downwards of acceleration. One moment I was suspended in the void and the next I was tumbling downwards, screaming, praying to wake up. Then, infinitely far below me, something moved. It must have been vast because as I fell, it hardly seemed to get any closer despite my velocity. 
The darkness peeled aside to reveal a curved, cloudy surface like a gas giant in deep space. The surface roiled and churned in a myriad of colors like ink in water. And then it looked at me. I woke myself screaming that night, drenched in sweat and panting as if I'd been sprinting for my life. I, I don't think I've ever been as terrified in my life. I felt dirty, tainted somehow, as if I had seen something forbidden and was forever marked by it. Worse, the image stayed in my imagination, replaying the last moments of the dream over and over. An eye, unimaginably large, staring at me as I fell towards it. I knew I'd never sleep again that night. The thought of possibly returning to that dream instead of the comforting lands I knew chilled me to the core. Instead, I had a hot shower, scrubbing my skin raw to try and free myself of the feeling of having touched something utterly alien and loathsome. It didn't work. The next day passed in a daze for me. I stumbled through my work on autopilot, barely speaking, oppressed by an awful feeling of being observed. Somewhere, I knew that that gargantuan eye was trained upon me. I could feel the pressure of its regard weighing me down so that every moment was a struggle against its terrible inertia. As night fell, my sense of dread increased. The image of that impossible eye staring hungrily up at me, the pupil yawning open as I tumbled through space towards it, haunted me. In vain, I tried to clear it from my mind, to replace it with happier thoughts and images. I remember watching an inane comedy on TV, but every joke seemed somehow pale, every guffaw from the laugh track hollow, even sardonic. By the time I switched my bedside light off, I was shaking. In the darkness, I closed my eyes and tried to summon the memory of the Riverside Inn at Althar, somewhere I'd always felt safe. They knew me there and would be happy to see me. I thought of the warm hearth, of the taste of their warm bread, the aroma of their spiced wine and of the purring of cats as they rubbed against me. And suddenly, I was falling. Below me, the awful eye glared up at me, the power of its insatiable hunger seeming to draw me towards it even faster. In some small part of my mind, I realized that it looked larger, as if I were much closer to it. Details of it burned themselves into my memory. It was the size of a world. The iris was dense layers of multicolored cloud, bright Gases that churned and roiled like Jupiter's red spot around the black pit of the pupil. Sluggish rivers of some heavy black liquid etched the surface beneath, giving the terrible thing the appearance of being bloodshot. It was when I finally got a good look at the pupil that I think I went mad. They say the eyes are the windows of the soul. This thing, then was hunger personified, a dreadful, aching hunger that could never be satisfied. The pupil that stared up at me, the pupil I was falling inexorably towards, wasn't a pupil at all. 
It was a maw, a vast, yawning gullet like a lamprey's mouth lined all the way down into darkness with jagged, shark-like teeth that ground against each other in slavering anticipation. For the second night in a row, I woke myself screaming. I haven't slept since. Not properly. What scraps of sleep I've been able to grab have been mercifully brief. You see, every time I go to sleep, I'm closer to the eye. And I know, I absolutely know that that when I finally fall into it, it will devour me, body and soul. I can feel it watching me all the time. I see it sometimes when I'm awake as, as if it's gnawing away at the barrier between reality and dreaming. It fills the sky behind the clouds or, or stares out of reflections in mirrors and windows. I'm its chosen prey, and it doesn't mean to let me get away. Once it has seen you, it owns you. And it is so very hungry. Joe slumped back in his chair as if the act of unburdening himself had exhausted his last reserves of strength. He eyed me warily as I made a few notes while I ran through possibilities in my mind. One thing was certain. His conviction was absolute. Even through his exhaustion, he truly believed every word of what he was saying. That dread and certainty was evident in every fiber of his being. This was a man utterly convinced that sleep meant his eventual doom. The cause of his problem was less obvious. There were no indicators of incipient schizophrenia in his GP referral, but it was possible that his doctor could have missed something. Likewise, a brain tumor could cause some of the symptoms Joe was reporting, including the intrusions of dream imagery into the waking world, but I thought it unlikely. Instead, I wondered if he could be suffering from REM sleep behavior disorder. The condition produces episodes of intensely vivid, often violent, dreaming, like night terrors, but without the accompanying paralysis. The root causes vary, but can include a host of degenerative neurological diseases like Parkinson's, diffuse Lewy body dementia, and Scheidrager syndrome, things I wanted to rule out as soon as possible. The use of certain antidepressants can also cause it, but there was no record of them being prescribed in his medical history. His extreme sleep deprivation might also be producing micro-sleep episodes, fleeting naps that occur so quickly that the sleeper isn't aware they've been asleep. That could cause his violent dream imagery to leak into his waking experience. All of this ran through my mind in a moment while I studied Joe and I came to a decision. I think we can help you, Joe, I said, mirroring his posture and pitching my voice at the lower end of the scale. These recurring dreams sound awful, and I'm sure they're horribly convincing, but dreams are all they are. They're the mind's way of clearing house, of reorganizing the experiences of the day into a coherent narrative. Humans need to dream. There's a raft of literature on the topic, and it all agrees that sleep and dreaming is vital to our physical and mental well-being. There are certain endocrine functions that only occur during sleep, and in deep sleep your brain restores the supply of adenosine triphosphate, the molecule you use for energy transport and short-term memory. Have you been having trouble remembering things? Joe shrugged, then said, Yeah, I guess so. It's hard to tell. I smiled. 
I'd have been surprised if you said anything different. So, these dreams have you so badly scared that you don't believe it's safe for you to sleep. I have some thoughts on what might be causing them, but I'd like to run some tests before I can prescribe a course of treatment. Would that be okay? Joe shrugged again. What sort of tests? Nothing invasive. First off, I'd like to schedule an MRI, just to make sure there's nothing physical causing your nightmares. Then I'd like to book you in here for a night, so that we can observe your sleep. We have a suite of very comfortable rooms here, equipped with cameras, so we can track your physical activities during sleep, and sensors, so we can monitor the electrical and chemical activity in your brain. Joe made a face. I don't want wires stuck in me. I laughed. No wires, I promise. Everything is done remotely. You'd have some small sensors taped to your head, chest, and arms, but that's it. I guarantee you'll have forgotten that they're there in a few minutes. The data is transmitted by Wi-Fi, the beds are very comfortable, and the whole thing is painless, I promise. He nodded then, though I don't know if he was truly assenting, or if he simply didn't have the energy to disagree. Excellent, I said, I'll make the arrangements. I think we can get the scans done tomorrow. I think we can fit you in for your sleep assessment this week. Again, he nodded. Don't worry, Joe, I said. We'll have you sleeping the sleep of the just in no time. Despite the demand the imaging facility at Brick is under, I managed to book a slot for Joe the following afternoon. When he arrived for his appointment, he looked even more haggard than he had done the first time I saw him. There was a yellow tint to his skin that I really didn't like, and his eyes were dark pits sunk in bloodless flesh. The procedure went quickly, Joe communicating in monosyllables when prompted over the rhythmic thudding pulse of the magnetic coils. He lay utterly still inside the imager torus as it slowly rotated around him, and I remember thinking of a corpse lying under the open night sky as stars wheeled from horizon to horizon. The results were anticlimactic, but good for Joe. No blood clots or signs of stroke, no tumors or signs of infection in his central nervous system. He did have a slightly enlarged frontal lobe and a corresponding enlargement of the parietal lobe, both areas of the brain that have been linked with religious belief, but other than that, his scans were normal. I did consider for a moment whether this slightly unusual brain structure might be the cause of Joe's extravagant dreams, but decided that was of secondary importance. First, we had to restore his faith that he could sleep safely. I relayed this to Joe, who took it all with stoic fatalism, as if I were telling him something that he already knew, then told him that we had a suite set aside for his sleep assessment the following night. I'll be there, he said. If it doesn't get me first... Under normal circumstances, I don't attend sleep assessments. I prefer to leave it to our postgrads to monitor the sessions and review the data the day afterwards, in order to preserve my objectivity. In this case, though, I felt it necessary to be there. Joe was terrified of sleep, and I wanted him to know he'd be safe with us, that someone would be watching over him. God, I had no idea. I was shocked when I welcomed Joe the following night. He was pale, unshaven, and trembling. His hand, when I shook it, was cold and clammy, and his face glistened with a thin sheen of sweat. He stank of fear and walked like a man who'd already died, but whose body had yet to realize. Silently, I led Joe to the suite and showed him around the lab, pointing out the cameras and talking him through the night session. You'll have these taped to your skin, I said, holding up the pea-sized wireless sensors we use. They'll tell us what's going on with your heart rate, blood pressure, and endocrine system. I gestured at the camera above the bed. 
This will monitor your posture and movement, and the thermographic camera next to it will monitor your temperature and blood flow. How's this gonna help me, Doc? He grunted. Well, for one thing, it will tell us what's happening inside your body when you dream. That will give us a clue to any possible physiological causes. Also, if we can detect exactly where you are in your sleep cycle when these night terrors begin, it can give us an idea of how to treat them. I looked Joe in the eye. You can't continue without sleep, Joe. If you carry on like this, you'll suffer hallucinations, mania, maybe even a psychotic break. I know you're scared, but this really is the only way. He nodded again, resigned, I think, rather than persuaded. He simply no longer had the will to argue. I handed him a dressing gown, pajamas, and slippers, and gave him a few minutes to shower and get changed. Then, when he was ready, I stuck the remote sensors to him and checked with the observation room that they were transmitting. As Joe climbed into bed, I smiled from the doorway. Don't worry, I said. I'll be just down the hallway. I'll be here all night on the other end of that. I pointed at the camera. You're perfectly safe. Sleep well. Then I switched off the light and closed the door behind me. In the observation room, I nodded at Anna, the postgrad on duty, before crossing to the kitchenette and pouring myself a mug of hot, strong coffee. She grinned when she saw my oversized mug. I'm not a night owl by any stretch of the imagination, and the days when I could pull an all-nighter with ease are long behind me. I was going to need all the help I could get if I was going to stay awake. Three of the six night suites were in use, each soundproofed and entirely self-contained. Each has a small ensuite bathroom, so there's never any need for the patients to step outside their room. None of the rooms have external windows, so there's no light pollution, and the individual air conditioning keeps each room at the optimal temperature for the occupant. I've slept in one myself on many occasions, and the sensation of total isolation and security is extremely restful, almost like returning to the womb. Crossing over to the monitor desk, I watched the screens as Joe, gray under the light amplification, shifted position in his bed. His eyes were wide open, and his movements were jerky as he twitched from one position to the next. He's fighting it, said Anna with a jerk of her head at the screen. He's terrified, I said, sipping my coffee. He's convinced himself that something terrible is going to happen if he falls asleep. But what makes you think it won't? she asked quietly. I felt a flare of irritation. Six years of medical education and a year of research, and Anna still had a tendency towards the mystical. Let's give him some white noise, I said. Keep it just below perception level. Anna touched a button and moved a slider control to just below a point marked by a piece of masking tape and black felt tip. Almost immediately, Joe's jerky movements began to slow, then stop. His eyes fluttered once, twice, then closed. Got him, I laughed. Keep the white noise on for another 30 minutes, then take it down by increments over the next 15. I want to make sure he's properly under. Anna nodded and set a timer going on another screen. She pointed at a series of traces on the main screen. He's out. Breathing, body temp, pulse, EEG, all sinking fast. He'll be in NREM before we know it. Hardly surprising, I said. The poor bastard's exhausted. Let me know when he hits Delta. Anna looked up. Why? He's not going to start dreaming until he starts REM sleep. I have a feeling, that's all. She shrugged. You're the boss. While Anna monitored our sleepers, I flipped open my laptop and busied myself catching up with the day's emails. By my calculations, we had about 90 minutes before Joe entered stage three of NREM, non-rapid eye movement sleep, 
what we call slow wave or delta sleep. It's the period of the sleep cycle when the brain produces delta waves at a frequency range between 0.5 and 4.5 hertz, allowing the neurons in the neocortex to rest. It's also the sleep phase where the brain does a little housekeeping, consolidating short-term memory into long-term storage, and the period most likely to produce night terrors. If that's what Joe was experiencing, I expected to see a sharp uptick in his brain activity, heart rate, breathing, and skin conductivity within the first few minutes of delta sleep. Privately, I hoped that's what it was. Night terrors are nasty, but at least they're treatable, and it would account for Joe's absolute conviction that he was doomed. But I was getting a nasty feeling we were dealing with something stranger. At the 90-minute mark, I looked up from my laptop and over at Anna. How are we looking? She glanced over the readouts. All quiet so far. He's in Delta? Anna nodded. And sleeping like the dead? She gestured with her chin at the display that showed the low-light image of Joe on the bed. He's barely twitched since he went under. I wish I could sleep like that. Well, you wouldn't if you'd spoken to him, I muttered, turning back to my emails. It was thirty minutes later that Anna's voice roused me from the reverie I'd fallen into. Boss, you need to take a look at this. I crossed over to the monitors. Problem? Anna shook her head slowly. Not sure. It's weird. I pulled up a chair and sat down. Show me. Anna's fingers danced lightly over a keyboard, and the screen in front of me changed to display Joe's readouts. Here's Joe's data from room four. She moused over to another screen and dragged the window over to my screen. Here's Mrs. Lyle in room three next door to Joe. She repeated the process. And here's Stuart Loy in room five, next door on the other side. She nodded. Right. Now, what's wrong with this picture? I glanced over at Anna before returning my gaze to the screen. They're in sync. Anna nodded again, grinning this time. Yup. I shook my head. That's not possible. Anna's grin got wider. But they are. I pushed back from the desk, still shaking my head. It's a system error. Anna laughed. Nope, I've already checked the feeds. That's what we're getting from each of them. There's no signal contamination. This is real. Three sleepers, all in separate shielded rooms, pulse, breathing, EEG, all identical. I stood up and began to pace. Okay. Okay. We can test this. Um, feed white noise into Joe's room, start it below the level of perception, and bring it up slowly. I don't want him to wake up, but let's see if we get a physiological response. On it. Anna tapped a button and slowly began to nudge the slider up past the tape. The effect was almost instantaneous. There was a spike in Joe's brain activity as his sleeping mind registered the change in his surroundings, and just as quickly the effect was mirrored in the two other sleepers. Holy shit, I breathed watching the three sleepers respond in unison. What happened next was my fault. I should have told Anna to cut the white noise, but I was so entranced by what I was seeing, so stunned by the implications that it simply never occurred to me. Anna saw it first. He's in REM. Joe's eyes fluttered on screen as his brain activity spiked again. He twitched and the speakers emitted a dull moan, a desolate sound that seemed to come from an infinite distance away. His head rolled to one side, and his hand waved briefly in front of his face as though he were trying to push something away. The screen fizzed with static for a second. I looked over at Anna. What was that? She was busy at her screen, scrolling hurriedly between windows. I don't know, boss. Something's interfering with the feed. What something? 
Without looking away from her screen, Anna pointed at the readouts in front of me. At a rough guess? That. Joe's EEG was peaking, the effect duplicated in the brains of the sleepers to either side of his room. He's having a seizure. A seizure capable of interfering with Wi-Fi? Anna shot back. The screen showing the camera view of Joe suddenly broke up into static and went black. I was out of the observation room and sprinting down the corridor before I knew what I was doing. It was as I was opening Joe's door that I heard the scream. God help me, but I never want to hear such a sound again. It was the shriek of a soul in torment, of someone face to face with his eternal, inevitable damnation. As I stepped into the room, a circuit breaker somewhere in the building tripped and the lights went out, instantly replaced by red emergency lighting that made it look like the antechamber of hell. Joe was gone. Where he'd been lying was a man-shaped hole in the sheets that somehow extended down through the bed. The edges fizzed and glowed like burning wire wool, like embers. I stepped forward and looked down into the hole. The rest of the night is something of a blur. Anna found me lying on the floor of Joe's room, bleeding from a nasty gash on my temple. There was no hole in the bed. The police seemed to think that Joe did it, that he attacked me while in the grip of some sort of psychotic break before fleeing the lab. I'm pretty sure I just hit my head as I fell. And yet, they haven't explained how a man, dressed only in his pajamas, could escape a locked building or why he'd leave his clothes, wallet, and keys behind. Somehow, I think they know they won't find him. I know they won't find him, no matter how hard they look. Our other sleepers reported no ill effects other than disturbing dreams, and I hope it goes no further than that. I once believed that science could give us the answers to the whys and wherefores of the universe. I believed that medicine could eventually explain and then treat every ailment that humankind was heir to. I don't believe that anymore. The universe is dark and strange and full of horrors. The best we can hope for is not to attract undue attention and to live out our span in ignorance. For when they see us, we arouse in them a terrible hunger and we belong to them. Joe has learned the cost of pushing beyond our safe little bubble universe and he's paid that price in full. I believe I will, too. You see, when I stepped up to Joe's empty bed and looked down, I saw him falling through an impossible darkness, tumbling, screaming into the vast, cavernous maw of an immense, monstrous eye, the yawning, tooth-lined gullet of its pupil undulating in dreadful anticipation. Then for a second before the horror overwhelmed me and I passed out, the eye shifted and stared past poor, doomed Joseph Pevlitsky. It saw me. It owns me. I can't. I mustn't sleep.
And that is the end of the story. Again, thank you so much, Chris, for allowing me to read your story here on the show. Please give him a follow on Twitter, at Dr. Talk. If you enjoy the show and want to help support it, please feel free to join me on Patreon. All patrons get access to the show a day early, and the top-tier supporters get a bonus reading of a longer-form story. We just wrapped up The Moonstone by Wilkie Collins, and a new story starts on the 30th, so there's never been a better time to join. Thank you, Ineptus Astartes, Matthias Hansen, and Eric Braun for your support. As always, please go and get vaccinated for anything and everything you can. COVID isn't over. We're still losing hundreds of people to it every week, and this can all be prevented with a simple little vaccination that you won't even feel. If you happen to see a racist, a conservative member of Congress or of the Supreme Court, just, you know, out and about, feel free and encouraged to make their lives just as uncomfortable as possible, but peacefully. And always remember that the most important step a person can take is always the next one. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next week. When Northcote suffered a tra- when Northcote suffered a catastrophic fire a few years ago, Brick took on much of the medical. Come on, Brick took on much of the medical medical imaging work. Jeez, when Northcote. <sighs> It's going to be one of these days. It's going to be one of these days, everybody.